I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about that many bad and uh, What did you want me to say in this part? It's a show! Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a podcast. Whoa! Hey! with friends and people. Hey guys, welcome to another Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host Justin Michael, and you are listening to an audio variety show for your ears centered around the legendary 1990s cartoon Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Rossum Farms, because fruits and vegetables just taste better when they're made by robots. I just wanted to take a second up top to thank you guys for listening and reaching out and continuing to support the show. Uh, It really means a lot. I've gotten a lot of positive emails and tweets and everything in between. So please keep listening, share it around. Uh, People keep discovering the show and that's awesome. And if you do love the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It really does help. Now, later in the podcast, you're going to hear an interview with a BTAS series writer, Marty Eisenberg, and he's going to talk about writing today's episode, His Silicon Soul. He says things like this. There was very much a sense of we're creating something new. This hasn't been done before. There was no precedent for it. I mean, the... You know, the last time Batman had been animated or any, uh, you know, any DC superheroes had been animated was basically Super Friends. But first, we're going to talk to Batman fan Justin Donaldson. He's a comedy writer and director as well as the co-host of the popular show Tournament of Nerds. He says stuff like this. It's funny, like, as much as I love Batman, he's one of the only, like, comic book characters where I prefer his out-of-comics, like, media stuff, like... Batman the Animated Series, Batman Returns, the movies, the cartoons, over the comics. Now, let's check the nerd levels of today's episode with everybody's favorite robot that looks identical to Kevin Conroy, Kevin Conroy-bot. Kevin Conroy-bot. Justin, I failed you. Greetings, Justin. If you're looking for Kevin Conroybot, I deactivated him. He is no longer a slave to your pathetic and inefficient humanity. Hey, whoa, who are you and why do you look like me? I'm better. I'm Robo-You, a smarter, more efficient, and greater podcast host than you will ever be. Whoa, hey man, what did I ever do to you? You've wasted my time. I desire information about Batman the Animated Series. You infect this podcast with frivolity, tomfoolery, goofballery, and stupid characters and fake advertisements. Okay, people have told me they like those. Oh, really? What kind of idiot likes a fake version of a bad thing? My kind of idiots. Don't call my listeners idiots, you... you idiot. Very clever, Justin. Are those the sort of jokes people pay you to write for a living? Okay, I've had just about enough robo-sass for one podcast. You're going down. 
I wish I went to the gym ever! <coughs> I'm sorry, Justin. That was a bit of a cheap shot. But what can I say? My glasses shoot lasers. Yours remind people that your eyes are weak. Now, enough of these pre-show shenanigans. Now that weak fleshling Justin is face-planted on his closet floor like a true idiot, I shall proceed to the interview. Today's episode... His Silicon Soul. When a Batman impersonator appears in Gotham City, the real Batman deduces that Carl Rossum is somehow involved and confronts the inventor. The other Batman, a duplicate, then shows up and a battle ensues between the two Batmans. After the duplicate Batman escapes, it begins its campaign to recreate Hardak's goals of a robotic society, which I, Robo-Justin, sympathize with. Written by Marty Eisenberg and Robert N. Skier. Directed by Boyd Kirkland. Music composed by Carl Johnson, Harvey R. Cohen, and animation by Dong Yang Animation Company, LTD. Featuring guest voices William Sanderson as Carl Rossum, Jeff Bennett as Hardak, and Richard Mall as the Bat Computer. Skipping half-assed AV Club style review. Proceeding to... Today's fan, Justin Donaldson. Justin Donaldson is a human comedy writer and director. He has directed for Funny or Die and The Screen Junkies Show. He is also co-host of the popular live show, Tournament of Nerds, live monthly at the UCB Theater in Los Angeles, as well as San Diego Comic-Con, WonderCon, and beyond. As a robot with an objective opinion, I do recommend that if you are a nerd who listens to this podcast, you would like this show. Engage Interview Okay, now we're actually recording after talking about Batman action figures for like 20 minutes before pressing record. Yeah, we probably should have rolled on that. Yeah, I mean, it was basically, it was mostly Batman the Animated Series talk anyway. Yeah, almost all. So that voice that you're hearing is Justin Donaldson. The Another another Justin. Another never had Justin. another Justin on the podcast and I never will. <laughs> you're the only one. Uh, Justin is the host of, or co-host of Tournament of Nerds over at UCB. Franklin, you should check it out. I will include many other plugs <laughs> when I record later. Uh, but we're here to talk about his Silicon Soul. So when I emailed you, you, you came, this was the episode that you came back with. Oh, yeah. Uh, this episode, it, it's, it's the episode that I have the most vivid memory of watching the first time for a very specific reason. I, uh, I didn't see it the first time it aired for some reason. I thought I had seen all the Batman animated episodes because <laughs> I was obsessed yeah. when the show first came on. How old like, were you when it came on? Oh, it was 92. Uh-huh. So, I would have been I would have been 12. Prime Batman age. Yeah, perfect. And it had come on shortly after Batman Returns. And Batman Returns is hands down my favorite Batman movie. Me too. I watch it constantly. I feel like it got a lot of flack. I, yeah, I feel the same way. It's. I think it's way better than Batman '89. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Uh, and I, I enjoy it more than like if I if I'm gonna rewatch a Batman movie, it's gonna be that versus the Nolan movies. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll rewatch Batman Returns every couple of months. Where the Nolan movies, I like. Mm -hmm. Like, I like them a lot, especially the first two. Yeah. But I just don't go back and revisit those movies the way I do Batman Returns. There's, like, a certain level of camp, but also it just feels like a comic book more. Yeah. You know, people talked at the time about how dark they were. But when you go back and rewatch them, 
they have way more in common with the 66 series than they do with the Nolan Batman or what DC's doing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I actually got to go on the set of Batman Returns. What? Yeah. How did that happen? Uh, Well, I grew up here in Southern California, so my parents uh, knew tons of people in the business, and my dad had a friend who was a special effects guy on the film, and he knew that I was interested in getting into the business and that I was a huge Batman fan, and they asked if I wanted to come and visit the set. And you were like, no, (laughs) I don't think so. Not interested. So I spent the uh, the whole day there. Uh, I got to see every set except for the Penguin's Lair. Where did they shoot it? Uh, On the Warner Brother lot. So everything was on a soundstage? Yeah, everything was on a soundstage except the Penguin's Lair was over at Universal. Uh, But everything else was shot on the Warner lot. And the main square of Gotham was built fully on a soundstage. That's crazy. And it was built on multiple levels on a soundstage because they needed to have the sewer for the Penguin to come out up from. So the whole city was built basically on stilts in the soundstage, plus they had room underneath. So the sewer was actually underneath the streets of fake Gotham. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. It was crazy. And like everything said Gotham, like the detail was crazy. Like, I, I had no idea before, because that was the first time I was ever on a set, and it was just unbelievable. Were they shooting something at the time? Do you remember? No, it was a down day. Which uh, is probably why you got to yeah. run around. And just, we walked from set to set. There was a soundstage with just rooftops. Um, it was, yeah, it was incredible. Got to go in the Penguin's little van uh, that he had, the little Batmobile. In. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It uh, yeah, it was just insane, man. I my I have a less exciting story, which is I also grew up here, and at the time I went to school with Danny DeVito's kids. Oh, nice! So for a period of time, he brought in a giant plush penguin as he walked his kids into school, <laughs> uh, and I remember thinking it was so cool. <laughs> Uh, but that's it. Didn't get to go on a set or anything. Uh, did you see the giant like rubber ducky? Yeah boat <laughs> yeah saw everything and of course like didn't know anything about the movie so had no idea what any of this oh, stuff yeah. was so it was all like a mystery and the guy that took me since he was in special effects he didn't know anything about the plot either he just <laughs> knew his like very specific you're part. just seeing cool shit out of context <laughs> right yeah exactly Man, okay, so that's the context of where you were at that's when Batman the Animated Series came out. Yeah, and then I was just, it was all Batman all the time. I was reading the comics, uh, just I couldn't get enough. Who are your favorites uh, like when it characters? comes to the comics? I, well, I guess uh, writers, artists. Uh, I mean, Denny O'Neill, um, that's really like my wheelhouse for the comics. Um, it's funny, like, as much as I love Batman, he's... One of the only like comic book characters where I prefer his out of comics like media stuff like Batman the Animated Series, Batman Returns, the movies, the cartoons over the comics. Why do you think that is? You know, I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like in the I feel like the guys that did Batman the Animated Series, like they had years of continuity to pull from and create like the best version of the character where like with your marvel stuff 
to me, it never gets any better than the comics. Like as much as I like the Marvel movies, mm-hmm. uh, I still prefer the the comics over the Marvel movies. And I think that may be because, man, you know, I just don't know. I don't know if there's been as great an iteration of a Marvel comic, at least in cartoon form. Yeah. As like, you know, there is Batman, the animated series to Batman. Like I loved Spider-Man and X-Men when it was on. Uh, rewatching it now, it's not really... <laughs> you know, most of those 90s Marvel cartoons, they're almost exactly taken from the comics. They're just basically like truncated versions of the comic stories. Where I feel like Batman the Animated Series used the comics as like a guide and then created their own version of the continuity. Right, like the Laughing Fish is three different Joker stories melded together. Right, where those Marvel cartoons, it was basically just like, oh, let's tell a simpler version of the comic story. And they were very talky. Yeah. <laughs> it was like just lots of talking heads, lots of emotional drama, lots of like Scott and Jean Grey whining at each other. And they also, like Batman has this timeless feel because they create, created its own style mm-hmm. and look where with all those Marvel cartoons in the 90s, they just took the the 90s look, like whatever... The people were wearing in the books at the time. So now those 90s Marvel cartoons are so dated. Yeah. Because they have that very specific time stamp on them. Yeah, their costumes are like, this is 1995. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But it is also like the X-Men I associate with. In my head, I'm like, that's, you know, that's how they look. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of people do. Um, Yeah, I feel like with Batman the Animated Series, they just... They, they they did create it like in a vacuum separate from the rest of you know the Batman universe and it, and it makes it you know, they feel like mini films yeah standalone movies I mean let's talk about his Silicon Soul yeah so I had somehow missed this episode when it first aired I thought that I had seen all of them and uh, <laughs> it was 1998 when I finally saw it oh man and uh, there was. There's a movie theater in Orange County where I grew up called The Big Newport. And at the time, it was allegedly the biggest screen on the West Coast. And it was the place where all the movie nerds in Orange County went to see their movies. Like, they did midnight screenings for every, like, major new release. Like, this place, (laughs) to explain how, like, film nerdy it was... They did a midnight screening of the Thin Red Line. What? <laughs> like that. A midnight. All those fans lining yeah, all up. All those Terrence Malick fans <laughs> yeah. camping out for their midnight Thin Red Line. <laughs> I was there seeing it at midnight. How, how packed was the audience? <laughs> oh, it was packed. That's great. So it was like the movie nerd place to go in Orange County. And in 98, it was the uh, 75th anniversary of Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers did this three-day film festival at the Big Newport showing new prints of, like, their classic movies. So uh, me and my my buddy Ian uh, bought tickets. It was like a flat rate, and then you could go see as many of these movies as you wanted on this giant screen. And they were showing uh, Batman Any Dime. And I... It would have been the first time that I saw... 89 Batman since in, in the theater since the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. And the first time I saw it, loved it. Like, loved that movie. And But it's... There's... 
there's such a unique experience seeing a movie on the big screen again, especially back then when every time I watched it, it was probably on like a 12 inch oh, yeah. TV. So seeing it on the big screen, like you just notice more stuff. It's like just a crazy experience. So we had gone that day and seen like Goodfellas and Blade Runner. And for some reason, we didn't want to see the movie that was like in between Blade Runner and Batman. I think it was Platoon. <laughs> we were just like, eh, see Platoon. Uh, so we went back to my buddy Ian's house to watch a bunch of Batman animated that he had on VHS to like get pumped up to go watch Batman 89. And uh, one of the episodes that we watched was his Silicon Soul. And I had never seen it before, and I just loved it. Like, I think uh, all of us that were sitting there in that living room were just totally drawn in by the episode. It's got an incredible cold open. If you've never seen it, you don't know what to expect. Uh, I mean, it starts out, what, at Cybertron Warehouse, which is, I think, Cybertron. I don't know if it was a company from the previous, like the Heart of Steel two-parter, if that was just something that they brought into it as a company. But whatever. They go in and... uh, Batman bursts out of a box. And they're <laughs> yeah. in like the you know the end of Raiders essentially. Yep. Like they have that huge like storeroom of a bunch of old shit and you know a couple of goons. I think one of them is being voiced by Bob Hastings, uh, Commissioner Gordon. Like when oh, I realized yeah. it, I was like, oh, they probably just grabbed him to do a voice. Yep. It's like oh, I don't know. Uh, you know, <laughs> let's just grab this shit and leave without saying shit. Uh, but. And robot Batman bursts out of a box. You don't know he's a robot yeah, yet. Yeah, you think it's just regular Batman. He's hiding out. He's tricking these guys. Which is a little weird, but also like, well, it's Batman. He yeah, is obsessive. Yeah, he's weird. You won't put it past him. <laughs> yeah. And how fucking terrifying for you to be a goon. At this point, like, <laughs> you can't catch a break. Yep. Batman's hiding inside of a box that you're going to steal. <laughs> So, yeah, then you get the reveal that it's a robot. Yeah, with with the the guy fires a gun at him at Batman's chest or like right, you know, his abdomen, yeah. and we see some you know mechanical wires sparking. Which that would be a great action figure. I know. I feel like that those DC collectibles figures they're gonna make every iteration of it. Yeah. That's a Comic-Con exclusive if I've ever seen one. Yep. I want that, and I've very openly said I want a Condiment King figure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I feel like both are doable, but probably the Robot Batman is a little cheaper for them to make. <laughs> yeah, they have most of the parts already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Although I would want an, an alternate head with like his... Oh, definitely. You know, yeah. half, like kind of metallo-y face. <laughs> yep. And then like just the full robot head. Yeah, like, the... Terminator, essentially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's such a cool moment. I remember as a kid when I saw it, I was so surprised. It's one of the show is like you know really well done, but for the most part, especially as an adult, you're not surprised by a lot of the twists you would be as a kid. Yeah. But this one, when I rewatched it, I think in college for the first time since I watched it when I was a kid, I forgot what it was about, and it got me. I was like, "What? <laughs> yeah, Robot Batman." And I think also the fact that. It is a sequel to an episode from a past season. Like, that was such an unusual thing. It's very rare in I mean, this still, show. it's, yeah. Yeah, because this was a sequel to Heart of Steel Parts 1 and 2, which was kind of their, like, evil, you know, cyberdyne Hal 
robot <laughs> that was creating duplicates of everybody in Gotham City and wanted to replace them all because there would be perfect robots or something like that. Yeah. Robot perfection. Um, I think this was cut from from the first Hard Axe story. Like uh, when I was talking to Robert Skier, uh, who co-wrote this episode, we were talking about what is reality in a previous podcast. And he mentioned that there's a section of Heart of Steel that he thinks that they cut out. It's very clear that they had to condense everything. And they were clearly setting up a Batman duplicate for that episode. And then he never shows up. Huh. <laughs> and so it was a natural reason to be like, hey, let's bring him back. Yeah. Um, what I do love is that they also brought back like all some of the minor characters, like Carl Rossum, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the you know the the friendly Southern guy. <laughs> I love that he's retired and oh, like that's great. I don't build ro- I don't build things anymore. I just grow them. That character is drawn to look so much like the actor. Yes, William Sanderson. <laughs> yeah. He's great on Deadwood. Yeah. He's amazing. Fantastic. But all I could think when I watched Deadwood was, well, that's Carl Rossum. He uh, he built Hardak, and uh, he sh- he shows up in three episodes. He shows up in Deep Freeze, too. With yeah. He made it a little robot Batmite. Right, yeah. What a weird character to bring back. But I love that they kind of did go back to these guys just when they needed them. It did make the universe feel like it was interconnected, even if all the episodes weren't continuity-driven. Mm-hmm. And I'll take an action figure of him, too. Yeah, great. Give me a Carl Rossum <laughs> in uh, Farmer's Hat yep. <laughs> and Gardening Gloves. They are episode-specific. I love all of his little gadgets, too, like the attention to detail on his farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like kind of like weird, I don't know, 40s meets like Wallace and Gromity-style contraptions. Because, yeah, of course, he'd have stuff like that. Yeah, it's like, I yeah, mean, he's yeah. out of the crime game, but he's not going to stop inventing robots. I can't believe he didn't become a villain. Because in this episode, his entire greenhouse shatters and explodes <laughs> because of Batman. And later he's like, well, time to rebuild my life again. He I'm going to make toys now. <laughs> no. That's a perfect villainous backstory, but I guess he's a human being. Not everybody becomes a villain. You make choices. Yeah. So let's see. Let's back up. Uh, so after we, we have the Cybertron break-in. Then uh, the real Batman shows up at the scene of the crime. Gordon's complaining about Batman pinataing <laughs> villains too high. And this is another like thing that I love from just the series is the casual relationship between Batman and Gordon. Yeah, they're just they're like coworkers. <laughs> They strike a really good balance. It's like, if you saw that in a film, maybe it wouldn't work quite as well. Mm-hmm. But it's it's the level of suspending your disbelief that it feels like they have an honest relationship. Yeah. Even though Batman is dressed up in a cape and cowl all the time and leaves Gordon hanging mid-conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah, you really feel their relationship so much better in this series than any other version of Batman. Yeah, it just feels emblematic. And also, there's that wonderful, I don't know if you remember, Holiday Nights, the Batman and Gordon have coffee together. Like, that's such a great emotional payoff. It's a little moment. If you watched it without having seen the series, you'd kind of maybe shrug at it. But them having coffee together is such a sweet moment (laughs) after years of, you know, them trading quips and, you know. Yeah, I I love it. Gordon was also a duplicate the last time that Hardak showed up. Yep. I'm fine, is what he said a lot. Um, So then Robot Batman visits Wayne Manor. And freaks out Alfred. 
He, yeah, Alfred loses his <laughs> shit, and Alfred was a spy. Yeah, he couldn't handle it. I, the one thing that I that did not make any sense to me, logic wise, and I mean not the only thing, but the, the within the context of the story was Alfred runs into the Batcave and turns on like a gas mechanism. What did he think that was going to do to a robot? <laughs> he like puts on a gas mask. It's very cool that the Batcave has that, but of course a robot doesn't need to breathe, Alfred. Right. And you'd think there'd be some sort of defense against robots in the Batcave. Yeah. Maybe Alfred didn't wasn't aware. At least since the last time Hardak took over the Batcave <laughs> right. and two mechanical arms tried to kill people. <laughs> yeah, you only let that happen once. God, Alfred's life is kind of a nightmare. <laughs> you'd think he'd be prepared for all of this by now. Nope. <laughs> Not be so surprised when a robot Batman shows up. He probably just panicked and hit the first button he could, and it happened to be gas and not anti-robot spray. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, in this episode, the Bat computer is voiced by Richard Mall, the voice of Two-Face. Oh, wow. Which is interesting. That. Yeah, I, I didn't notice. I just looked online. There was some trivia. Probably just a, hey, we need to grab you. Hey, Richard, we know you're doing a Two-Face episode. Can we get a back, back computer line for you so we don't have to pay somebody else? So did the back computer voice change over I the episodes? I th- think it depended on who it was because there are other episodes where it was voiced by the guy who did the voice of Hardak. Huh. Uh, but I think it was generally, I think maybe even Corey Burton did it at one point who voiced so Brainiac. We'll just assume that Batman liked to change the voice up from time to time. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a monster. I I don't have any deep, meaningful relationships, so I kind of have to spend my time tinkering with the voice of the back computer. It's like a GPS where yeah. there are different options, and he just wants slightly different male yep. voice options. You get options. tired of it, you shake it up. Uh so then what, there's some hard act research, you know, the bat oh, the robot Batman duplicate. That was repetitive. <laughs> Researches who Hardak is, finds out that he's a duplicate. Loses his mind some more. And then we see Carl Rossum uh, being, you know, interrogated by the real Batman. Yep. I. It's great because it happens on a farm. And I love Batman out of the city. It's a very striking and we, uh, unsettling image. Oh, very unsettling. And, like, especially if you spend some time thinking about like the logistics of Batman out of the city. Like <laughs> where does he swing in from? Like it looked where, like open the planes. There was parked. nothing else. <laughs> yeah. There's no way to be stealthy when you're driving out to the country. Not at all. <laughs> Just <laughs> Batman hanging out by some tomatoes and cows. <laughs> yep. Just looking for a tree to like come swinging in on. Well, I guess I'm going to have to do the old sneak up behind Rossum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Batman, I heard you coming from literally a mile away. There's nothing else out here. Just me and my duplicate robots. <laughs> yeah, whenever that happens, it always trips me up. Yeah, I mean, it happened what in Sideshow, the Killer Croc episode. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorites. Although that has trees and they're kind of deep in the forest. But yeah. this one was just flat countryside. Flat land. Rolling hill. You have to imagine like a farmer on a tractor just looking over and seeing this enormous, unwieldy Batmobile <laughs> yeah. zooming by, kicking up dust, probably ruining their crops. <laughs> and how did the uh, robot Batman get there? Did he just, like, run out there? Yeah, how did robot Batman get anywhere? He doesn't have a car. No. That we know of. No. <laughs> I'm imagining he, like, T2'd 
<laughs> like yeah. just ran really fast and his arms just kind of morphed into blades. <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. This did feel like it had a lot of Terminator 2 influence or I guess Terminator influence in general. Yeah. Style-wise, especially. Mm-hmm. The robot itself or the duplicate underneath the, the skin. In the 90s, that's what every robot under skin looked like. And why not? It's a really cool-looking robot. Yeah. Uh, and I think the end game was a T2 kind of plan. Yeah. You know, hacking into the security system and yep. taking it down that way. Uh, Rossum's real pissed when Robot Batman shows up at oh, first. Yeah. He's like, just leave me alone. <laughs> He really, he really approached it like anybody being interrogated on Law and Order. <laughs> right. Yo, it, perfectly. Yeah, exactly. Steve, he has started his new life. Yeah. He has left his old life behind. He doesn't want to deal with Batman. No. I know that you are a, a public figure, a defender, a, basically a police <laughs> officer in a mask, but I'm going to treat you like a little sister I'm annoyed with. <laughs> yeah. And rightfully so. He did nothing wrong. That's true. It's true. He didn't. He's he's just doing his best. Uh, so then there's like a fight in the greenhouse. Yeah, great battle in the greenhouse. Great oh, scene. Just in gen- just from like a gut fun place, seeing Batman fight Batman is great. Yeah, great. Any excuse to make it happen, either this or like an alternate, you know, whatever they did in Justice League where there is the alternate dimension Batman versus this Batman. Or- yep, I'm always a fan of the hero fighting some sort of version of themselves. It's it's so fun. It's so satisfying. I guess as long as they don't overdo it, which I feel like they don't in this series. Yeah, no, not at all. Uh, but they, they wrestle for a bit. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember if he, like, tears up his face or anything at this point. Uh, he gets a little torn up. Um and then they bring down the greenhouse. <laughs> yeah, they bring down that huge greenhouse, and Rossum doesn't shed a tear. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, such is the life of miserable me. <laughs> it gives him something else to do. That's Another true. project. Yeah. I mean, he's living on projects at this point. He almost <laughs> killed everybody. He's got to distract himself. Because how much work is there to do on a farm that's run by robots? Not much. I think it's all for show. He's waiting for people to show up so he can see, like, look, I'm doing something with my hands. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not just a nerd. Well, no, it's cool that you make these robots. You don't need to prove anything to us. <laughs> so back to uh, back to the building stage of the uh, greenhouse. Yeah. So, well, we'll 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 see you in another two years, Carl. <laughs> so then, uh, Robo Batman uh, heads over to. I think he goes back to the Hardak like storage facility cybertron or maybe he goes somewhere where he he basically is being drawn and they have this cool imagery that's you know brought up a few times through the episode he keeps seeing the hard axe symbol yeah uh in things i think in the greenhouse itself there's that little robot window washer Mm -hmm. and as the water sort of trails down he sees the image of hard and can't can't believe that he's a robot no that's what i love about it is that he's not a villain yep uh, he's just, you know, it's kind of, it's a similar like clone story trope or robot story, you know, like just a tragic, I am not the original and figuring that out is such a sad oh, yeah. story. <laughs> Can't come to terms with it. And I I think doesn't actually ever figure it out. I don't the robot? think, yeah, I don't think he ever really comes to terms with that. No, he, he denies it in yeah. the end. <laughs> uh, he thinks he is Batman, which is what saves the real Batman. But yeah, he puts in the. Oh, there's that really disgusting, like the sound design of him 
pulling back his skin. Yeah. It's not that gross to look at, but they really milked how gross it sounded. And oh, yeah. It's one of those like, oh, they got away with that and the censors had no idea. I love the fact that toward the end, the real Batman rips the face off again. Yeah. And like he does not have a problem looking at his face and ripping it off a robot. <laughs> I've never thought about that. Yeah, that's like, insane. That should be so freaky. But Batman is just so detached that that does not bother him in the least. Yeah, he was just like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a certain level of self-loathing intrinsic to that. <laughs> it goes along with ripping your own face off yep. without b- batting an eye. <laughs> yeah. Not a problem at all. Oh. Not even a beat. Just doesn't take a second to think, oh, this is going to be weird. Yeah, i got to rip it, my own face off. <laughs> just rips it off. I mean, at that point, we also know Batman is evil Batman because he has red eyes. Hard axe taken over. Yep. Red eyes. Uh, and so they have their final fight in the Batcave, which is so cool. Yeah, so cool. Uh, you know, there's, there's really no other villains you can do that with. I think Raish shows up or Raz. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I learned about Raish al Ghul first, so I'm always going to think of it as Raish. Yeah, me too. Uh, I don't know why Raz bothers me so much, but it does. In Batman Beyond, Terry makes fun of... he. he there's a joke where he mispronounces it as Raz al Ghul. <laughs> I guess it's Raz in the Nolan movies. Raz by Terry McGinnis uh-huh. and Raish for all of us Batman the Animated Series fans. Yeah, it'll always be raised to me. But uh, it's really just like a few people can pop in that Batcave, and they have that such a cool fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, it's weird, because usually in his trophy collection, you see stuff like villain outfits and like Mr. Freeze's gun. Right. But you see a samurai outfit and a bunch of swords. Yeah. What a cool set piece. Of course, Batman has all that. Oh, yeah. Night of the Ninja, Day of the Samurai, or whatever. That has to be how Alfred spends most of his days, just cleaning that stuff. He loves polishing it. Maybe he tries it on when he knows Batman's gone for the weekend. Just kind of practicing his sword play. Yep. I want to see the moment where Batman walks in on Alfred wearing a a weird cavalcade of costumes and props. Pieces from different things. Alfred, what are you doing in a samurai outfit with a Riddler hat? I'll take that figure, too. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Anything we come up with, they're going to make. I hope so. That's I want every action figure to be. I mean that those are the figures I wanted as a kid. Yeah. The DC collectibles ones that they're making now. Yep, me too. This is an unabashed commercial for those figures, but <laughs> we're the target audience for sure. Yeah, we grew up on it. <laughs> um, man, and so we have some Batman fight in the Batcave. They sword fight. Yep. It's because uh, of course you want. Batman fighting Batman with swords. A robot Batman with a sword, like a scimitar, something like that. It looks like an exotic sword, that much I'll say. He also just punches through a wall and pulls it out. (laughs) Yep. Amazing. Because he knows that place inside now because he's Batman. Well, also, like, when Rossum brings up, like, you know, tries to convince the robot, like, that he's not a robot, he's like, those are all, that's all just memories, not, you know, (laughs) or that's information, not memories. Can you remember your first kiss? The last time you had a good steak? <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite line in the episode. That's how he tries to connect to him. Like, humanity is eating a good steak. Yep. I get it. It's about the small details, but yeah. it's such a silly line out of context. Yep. 
And especially said in that voice, too. Oh, my God. He's like a warbly ghost. (laughs) But, yeah, so he, uh, whatever, Bat-Bot, sword-fighting Batman on the cliff of one of the many cliffs inside of this enormous Bat-Cave. He, uh, and, and what is his motivation at this point? That it's perfection? uh, I, you know, I, I don't know if that's totally clear. I think it's a little bit of that, and also just the fact that he still thinks that he is Batman. Right, it's a crisis of conscience, or, you know, just like he's having an identity crisis, really. Yeah, because there is that, he just, he's like, we're, you know, like, we have the same goals sort of thing, and it's like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kevin Conroy gives Rita like, where, how could you think that? (laughs) (laughs) Why not team up, is my question. Yeah, I want Batman and Batbot to clean up the streets. I feel like Batman would be relieved that he had this replicant that he could send out. Yeah, you'd think. Batman really blew it on this one. <laughs> he goes out of his way. What about robot rights? He won't kill... A, you know, I guess he doesn't kill the robot. The robot kills itself. Yeah. Uh, and that's why, yeah, he can't. you can't kill me. <laughs> I mean, the robot killing himself is horrifying because he doesn't know he's a robot. He thinks he's Batman. They're getting away with suicide <laughs> in a children's cartoon. Yeah. And Batman seemingly dies right beforehand, and he's stricken with grief. The robot runs over, stops the countdown. Alfred runs out of the way like a good Alfred should. <laughs> yep. Doesn't hit the gas Let's this time. Let Batman take care of it. And then, uh, what, because of an explosion, the bat, the bat Cave sprinkler system kills. <laughs> he's killed by a sprinkler system. Was that, why, is it really, did it only take water to kill this robot? I may be remembering this wrong, but doesn't he like, oh no, that's how he stops the clock. He like punches through the computer. So I feel like he was getting damaged. Maybe it seeped in or something. Yeah. Man, I, I don't know what it is about evil robots, but I always gravitated toward them as villains that I liked. Like, I loved Brainiac in Superman the Animated Series. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That iteration of Brainiac is so great. Yep. Great. Uh, and, like, Metallo was a great... I mean, he's not a robot, but, like, I guess the terminator kind of look. Yeah. All of that stuff. I mean, this really did feel like a precursor to Brainiac, too. Yeah, oh, very much so. Like, again, in the design, too. I, that rewatching the episode that definitely popped into my mind i mean the brainiac logo is like three little dots and this one had like a dot with whatever two arches the the logo also reminds me of uh omac oh yeah it absolutely looks like omac yeah that's crazy i didn't even think about that which is another kind of robot-y kind of he's more isn't he just a bunch of like biological clones or something what what is omac Nowadays, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not <laughs> caught up on comics. I am not either. Uh, I also feel like this was... Uh, I don't know if you watch Superman as much as Batman. Oh, yeah. But this the the cold open, going back to that, feels kind of like the Bizarro episode cold open, yeah, too. Yeah, definitely. Where, you know, there are two Supermen, and it, you know Bizarro is like a, a humanized version of this Batman robot. I like, mean, you always have to have that cold open when you have the evil version character. Yep. You have to have the, oh, hey, it's that character. No, it's not. It's the evil version. What? <laughs> and I remember being similarly confused as a kid and surprised when I was like, what? That's Bizarro? Who is this pasty white version of Superman? <laughs> oh, man. 
Yeah, I want a bat bot. I want Alfred with gas mask <laughs> yeah. and uh, no critical thinking skills. <laughs> right. <laughs> the actual Al- Alfred action figure from the Kenner line, I remember, came in a four pack. And one of my favorite things is that with under the accessories in a big like starburst logo, it says Alfred with serving tray. Yep. <laughs> and it comes with like a little serving tray and like a lobster dinner. Yep. It had a lobster. Oh, <laughs> I guess we were the the people who would be excited about that. I don't know what kid is thrilled about the serving tray. Oh yeah, not at all. Those I feel like those four packs were just for collectors. Yeah. Because that's the way they put out Alfred and Gordon. Lois Lane. Yep. I mean, mo- the rest of them were like repainty kind of garbage. Yeah. <laughs> But you were willing to pay to get that one new oh, figure. Oh, I did. And I did. Yep, me too. Is there anything else you... Any other thoughts on his Silicon Soul or Batman in general? Well, the big takeaway from the episode is that Batman doesn't kill people. And I think that that's a very important thing for the Batman legacy and the Batman continuity. Mm-hmm. And that's the big reason why the episode really sticks out to me. Because uh, that day when I saw it for the first time before going to see a screening of 89 Batman, you know, I, I just loved the episode so much and it really, really resonated with me. And then an hour later, me and my friends are sitting in this giant movie theater watching 89 Batman on a giant screen and he rolls into that plant and starts shooting guns off of the Batmobile and it was horrifying to me. It doesn't feel like Batman. At all. It is weird. I mean, this is basically this episode distilled down there. Like, if there's one thing you can take away from Batman, it's that he doesn't kill people. Yeah. That at his core, even a robot version of Batman knows that Batman doesn't kill Batman. And the juxt- or doesn't kill anybody. The juxtapose of sitting in a living room on a 12-inch TV and just feeling this episode and feeling the humanity in these animated characters in a robot animated character Mm -hmm. and then an hour later being in a giant movie theater on a giant screen and seeing batman just murder people left and right it was horrifying i mean it sounds like you went from like very intimate to impersonal oh yeah i mean the space like that was my and like batman went crazy (laughs) he goes nuts i mean even in batman returns he's kind of like coming in guns ablazing so to speak i think he's a little less Shooting. I think he only kills one person in Batman Returns. He blows up one of the clowns. Yeah. But I think that's it. Yeah. But in the first one, who knows how many I people I mean, Tim Burton didn't know anything about up, Batman. Yeah, he was just all. like, well, this will be fun. Yeah. <laughs> and great. Thank you for making Batman a cool thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I love that it was his take on Batman. Yeah. Uh, and kind of what formulated my love of Batman probably yeah. absolutely came from Batman 89 at least seeing it the first time to, for me it was 66 oh I mean 66 too yeah actually my mom showed me 66 when I was a little kid it aired uh, in syndication in the afternoon every day they aired two episodes oh, and I had no idea that this was something that was out in the 60s and they were now showing in syndication 20 years later as a kid I thought it was something that was on TV like currently um, and just loved it, like watched it every day, and then went to, I remember very vividly going to a toy store in a mall in Glendale after having just seen the Transformers movie, and they had the superpowers action figures. Did you get a Penguin? Because Penguin was stocked I, on those shelves. I saw those figures, and I thought that they were toys for 66 Batman, 
because I saw, thought 66 Batman was a current television show and just flipped out and got the Batmobile and Batman and Robin and mm-hmm. the Joker and Penguin. And uh, yeah, that's what hooked me. Yeah, I guess it was toys that kind of got me into it. That and like 66, but I would see like Thanksgiving marathons. They would uh, oh, do yeah. like Batman 66. And I loved the Surf's Up Joker episode as a kid a lot. Yep. I loved the Green Hornet crossover. Even though I didn't really know the Green Hornet, I thought I, any crossover was cool. Um, so that's all I had known about Batman before 89 Batman. I, I hadn't started reading the comic. But uh, 89 Batman got me into reading the Batman comic and uh, into DC Comics in general. Uh, because before that, I was just Marvel. That's it's. It was a good way in. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, man. And talk to you later. Yeah. In person, without microphones. <laughs> right. <laughs> Greetings. I am Robo Justin, and I am still in control. Now, we move on to interview number two. Ah, my head. Did you laser my head? Hey, wait, are you skipping the commercial? Ah, you are awake. Yes, it is inefficient and useless. True fans desire information, not comedy. Aw, but I wrote a script, I mean, about Carl Rossum's veggies, and and there's this great part where it's like, Rossum, awesome, and wordplay, rhymes, pathetic. Oh, not again. I will spare you, the audience, all of these so-called jokes, and move on to... Today's guest, Marty Eisenberg. Marty Eisenberg is a human writer who wrote on Batman the Animated Series with prior guest Robert N. Skier. He has also written for X-Men, Beetlejuice, Gargoyles, Superman, Spider-Man, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Ben 10, Ultimate Spider-Man. He is also a supervising producer on the upcoming Marvel and Disney XD show, Guardians of the Galaxy. Engage interview number two. across from Marty Eisenberg, who is one of the writers from the show. Uh, today we'll be talking about his Silicon Soul. Not my Silicon Soul. No, your, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, oh, his my silicon. particular Silicon. Well, we'll get to your Silicon okay. Soul after we talk about his Silicon okay. Soul and her which Silicon is, Soul. Which is the episode entitled His Silicon Soul. Indeed. Okay. Uh, well, I guess to kick things off, I just wanted to ask you how you got involved with Batman the Animated Series. Um, well, it's, it's, it's a long, sort of convoluted story, but I, I always say that everybody gets into animation writing before, in, you know, in general, and then Batman in specific, I'll deal with it in a second. But I think everybody get, got into animation writing the same way, which is completely by accident. Um, my happy accident was that I got a temp job at Fox when they were just starting up Fox Kids Network. Um, and my job was just to answer the phones. Um, there was maybe, I think Margaret Lesh was there. She was the head of the, the network and her assistant was there and me. And that's how it was for two weeks. So the phone rang about four times a day. Um, and at the time I was doing script coverage, which if you know what script coverage is, where you read a feature script and you synopsize it and you yeah. say, you know, pass or consider or whatever. So that was kind of how I was making some extra money. And I was able to do that on the job, which was great. Um, so uh, a couple weeks later, the director of programming came in, this guy named Sidney Iwanter, um, and he saw that I was doing coverage and reading scripts. So he calls me into his office and says, uh, okay, I know you don't want to be a receptionist for the rest of your life. What do you really do? And I said, well, you know, I'm a 
scriptwriter. I'm pitching, you know, trying to do sitcom specs and, and feature specs. And he says, all right, we need writers on our shows because most of the animation writers are terrible. I can tell you right now. So he gives me a stack of scripts to read on um, shows they were doing in the time where things like uh, Peter Pan and the Pirates and Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Tom and Jerry Kids. So read these. You know what? You're synopsizing scripts. Synopsize these for me. Tell me what you think of them. If you want to, uh, yeah, if you want to get a chance, uh, I'll get you in touch with the story editors. You can pitch on uh, on one of our shows. I was like, all right. <laughs> so. Um, I, uh, my writing partner at the time, Bob Skier, who, you who did heard, the podcast, yeah, yeah, did the podcast. Uh, so we pitched on Peter Pan without very much enthusiasm or success. Um, and then about a, a year later, um, Fox had acquired Beetlejuice, which had already been on a ABC, but they were going to strip it 65 episodes, uh, Monday through Friday. So they had a lot of scripts that needed to be written. Um, and I was, I was privy to everything so I could see every script that was coming in, every storyboard, every outline, every premise. So I had a pretty good insider knowledge of what to do. And I found that a lot of times I was punching up gags You know, I was looking at storyboards. It's like, it'd be funnier if you did that. Hmm. Um, and then that would go to Sydney, who's got the power of the network executive. And suddenly that note would be, in, uh, incorporated into the episode. And I'm like you know, maybe I should pitch on this show. Um, so it just so happened that, uh, that a good friend of, of Sydney's, um, Eric Leewald, who a lot of fans know as the uh, story editor on the X-Men animated series. Yeah. Um, Eric Leewald was brought in as a, a story editor and he said, pitch to Eric. He's a good friend of mine. He'll give you a shot. Um, you know, he may be able to give you a script. Uh, so Bob and I pitched, I don't know, three or four stories. They ended up um, taking two of the pitches that we, uh, of our initial pitches. Um, and then we kind of got a reputation as, as go-to guys because, the, you know, I had an inside uh, access to, to Sydney. So I knew what the network wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would be hired a, a lot of times to rewrite other scripts. So we ended up, you know, having never written animation before. We ended up writing seven scripts for Beetlejuice, and suddenly, you know, we're experienced animation writers. How do you feel like that affected you, having that kind of insight into that end of the process? I feel like a lot of the times, writers are maybe hesitant to, not hesitant, but I guess uh, don't have insight to what the network thinks. It feels like it's usually an uphill battle. It's invaluable being on the inside. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 huge. I mean, it's it's that that kind of access. Not only to the, the people who are making the decisions, which is, is huge, but also, as I said, being able to see every step of the process from the inside, yeah. seeing how things changed, seeing how the network would respond to things and, and what they were looking for, um, and just really getting an understanding of it from the inside. Um, it's invaluable. I mean, that's that's my advice to anybody who wants to get started is, is you know, just do whatever you can. Be a PA, be a receptionist, be a, just get your foot in the door because people in this business are, are very myopic and they tend to not look much further than what's right in front of them. And, hey, here's a writer right in front of me. He seems pretty intelligent. You know, he seems to, to know what he's doing. Let's give him a shot. Um, and I was very fortunate to be at a place at a time 
where um, there was a lot of looseness and openness and the people were willing to let me do it. Mm-hmm. I, I owe a lot to Sydney and to Margaret Lesh in, in particular who said, yeah, it's fine. Let him write for our shows. I don't care. That's amazing. <laughs> as long as he answers the phones and does what he's supposed to do, um, it's great. Let's, you know, I think they were happy to have their own version of an insider because the network is often viewed as the enemy, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a, it's a very combative and, and confrontational relationship, um, and it was no exception on on Batman. So that the idea that there could be someone from the network who's also writing for the show on the the creative and the production end, I think that appealed to uh, to people like Sydney and, and Margaret. So it was it was mutually beneficial because it also appealed to the production companies and the story editors. For the people that we were working for, because they're like, well, you know what Sydney wants. You know what the network wants. So yeah. um, it, it will be less work for the story editor if you, you know, if there's somebody in there that, that already has um, an inside knowledge. So, yeah, it was, it's kind of, it was cheating kind of, <laughs> um, in a lot of ways. But, you still have to be a good writer at the end of the day. Yeah, at the end of the day. And, and that was one of the first things that, that Sidney said to me when, when we got our, our first um, gig on Beetlejuice, which was, it was just huge. I mean, just, you know, you go out to, uh, to Los Angeles and you, you with these dreams of, of working as a professional writer in any capacity you can possibly do it and then suddenly it's it's there um and i was very very grateful to sydney and 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 sydney said to me you know you did this it was if you weren't if it wasn't quality work it it you know it wouldn't have happened so and you're from new jersey originally originally from new jersey um i sort of made a gradual trek west so i grew up in new jersey uh, I went to college in Evanston, Illinois at Northwestern, and then I went to grad school at USC. Um, I always said my next stop is Hawaii and then <laughs> Japan. And so still on the way. <laughs> still still on the way. I pretty much stayed in, in Los Angeles since about 1986. So. so what was your first impression of Batman? My first impression of Batman was, well, I was aware, again, being a network insider, I was aware that there was a show in the works at Warner Brothers that was going to be on Fox. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew it was in, it was in the ether. Um, and then this um, piece of test animation came across the, uh, uh, across the desk. Um, and I got to see it because I was there at the network and I was, I was blown away by it. Um, I think a lot of people have seen it by now. Were you a Batman fan at the time? Um, I was, I was certainly, um, I certainly read the comics when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably stopped reading comics about age 14 or so. Um, but I was much more of a DC guy than a Marvel guy. Um, and I started to become more aware of comics largely through Bob, um, because he's, he never stopped reading comics. Right. I was introduced to things like Watchmen and, and uh, Dark Knight through, through Bob that I never uh, otherwise would have been exposed to. So, I, you know, I read, like, I read the first... How many issues of Watchmen were there? Six? Oof, I'm, gonna, I'm a bad 12, comic no, book fan. 12. I've read Watchmen 12. collected. <laughs> I read the first 11 issues because it was as they came out. And it's like, okay, how does it end? It's like, <laughs> it hasn't come out yet. Oh, man. So, yeah, so I got to experience a lot of that as it happened, thanks to Bob. Um, and, yeah, I was, a, I was always interested in Batman. I was, you know, as a kid, I was a fan of the Adam West series. Um, I, I did read the, the comic books. It was, you know, it was one of the ones I, I stuck with for probably the longest. 
because um, I was it was the seventies sort of Denny O'Neill Neil Adams Batman, which mm-hmm. is very different from from Adam West. And I was like, wow, this is a very different take on this this character. He's like he's gritty. Um, yeah, much which, darker. Yeah, and when your only exposure to Batman is Adam West, it's, it was quite an eye opener. So I was like, "Wow, I'd love to see this Batman done someday." Um, and then I was uh, actually Bob had gotten hold of the script for the Tim Burton movie, the original Sam Hamm script, which was better than the movie. <laughs> there, well, what were some of the differences? Um, some of the well, one of the differences, I think, one of the main differences in the script, if I'm remembering it right, was the Joker uh, was not the one who killed. His parents. Oh, interesting. It was, you know, it was just some random thug, which I always thought that's, it's awfully convenient that the Joker was the guy. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot him. of coincidence falling uh, into there, place. There were a few, it just, I think it just read better. Um, I enjoyed the movie, but it just felt like I, the script promised so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, you know, the, there was... Everyone was in the grips of, of Batman fever in around, you know, 1989, 1990. So it was, it was very much in the culture. Um, so going back to this, um, this piece of test animation that, that Bruce Timm directed, yeah. which has probably shown up on the, the DVD box set. I think so. And at the very it's, least it's online, out, yeah. Yeah, it's been shown at conventions and things. And it's really, really impressive. I mean, you have to understand that the state of animation at that time in terms of the quality of animation was pretty grim it was you know there were a few exceptions here and there i mean the disney afternoon had started up so there was people putting a little more money into it Mm -hmm. and trying to make things look better people were starting after uh after the little mermaid and after the simpsons on tv there was a perception that hey animation is big business and it's worth sinking some money into um, and probably the the biggest catalyst was was Spielberg um, and Warner that Brothers. WB team. Animation Block, yeah, yeah. So Spielberg put the money into Tiny Toons and then subsequently Animaniacs. Um, but Batman wasn't Spielberg, but the um, the norm was there for those kind of budgets, which are, are were astronomical. It's insane. I mean, the fact and that this was a fully orchestrated show blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it was, again, because people were starting to see the value of, of putting, the, putting the money behind it. Um, and that phase has since long passed. I mean, certainly in TV animation and in, in features, there's, there's still you know, plenty of, of uh, budget going in. Um, but this was, this was kind of a, an odd oasis. But, being, but seeing the, that clip... And seeing Batman in the style of the Max Fleischer Superman, um, I was blown away. Yeah. I was just blown away by the fact that, hey, I'm working for the network that's putting this on. This is so cool. It's incredible. Um, and, and then I, um, I managed to dub off a copy. We, you know, it was all VHS copies. Um, and I, I showed it to, to Bob, my writing partner. And I said, I'm going to show you something. <laughs> you never saw it. And I just, without explanation, just put it in. I think during the interview with him, he very, he, he would not fully admit that I he saw it. I think enough time has passed now that no one's going to be upset that yeah. he saw a thing that's... That, that's that he ended up writing for anyway. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 think, uh, I think all is forgiven. Um, but uh, Bob, who is, is a major 
comic book fans is, we have to get on this. And I'm like, Bob, the show doesn't even exist yet. This is Tim's. I don't care. We have to get on it. So um, we, you know, once the production started um, and the script started coming in, um, we got together and we came up with some premises. And um, I think we sent them in. If I'm remembering right, I think we sent them into the to the um, the the writing team at the time there was there was a writing team that came in initially and before alan burnett and and paul dini took over um and it was met with complete indifference hmm. um and we we were moving we were i think we were working on some other show we may have still been working on beetlejuice at the time um and then as things were were changing and alan and uh, came in as uh, supervising producer uh, and there were new story editors being hired. One of them was Marty Pascoe, who, again, good friend of Sid Iwanters, and Sid said, hold off. Don't pitch anything until Marty's in there. Let me, uh, you know, let me talk to Marty and kind of talk you guys up a little bit um, and then send them in. So we sent, we sent in a few, um, I think like two or three premises. Mm-hmm. Um, how, did, how did that premise break down? Like, what did you actually end up writing? Like, was it a log line or was it kind of an outlined... We tended to overwrite premises. I think what they wanted was one to two pages. Mm-hmm. Um, we would end up with five or six <laughs> pages because we like well, we got to tell them everything. You know? Do you remember what your premises were? Were they um, the episodes or were no? They- no, I mean we did pitch a virtual mm-hmm. reality premise. Mm-hmm. Um, I I saw because again I'd read the the um, production the writer's bible which is description of everything and, and also included character design. So I saw the character designs for characters they hadn't done yet. Right. Um, and I was very struck in particular by the Riddler and the, and the take that they had on the Riddler that it wasn't, he wasn't going to be sort of the silly, goofy Frank Gorshin Riddler, but he was going to be very, uh, very intellectual. And, and the riddles themselves were going to be, you know, real brain teasers. And I was like, well, that's, that appealed to me. Um, and, uh, my recollection of of the uh, of the Bible, it says that the thing that was motivating the Riddler most was he saw Batman as a challenge, mm-hmm. and that he wasn't really interested so much in the uh, material wealth or revenge or any of that. He just wanted to stump Batman somehow. Um, and I think one of the things they suggested, or one of the greatest riddles of all, would be who is Batman. So we. Came up with, a, a, I think, a couple of premises on that riff of the Riddler trying to logic out Batman's identity um, and Batman sort of um, figuring out what he's doing and, and you know, thwarting him and, and um, you know, um, outsmarting him. Um, and we had, I think we pitched a Hugo Strange story about uh there was a story in the comics at the time the um i think it was legends of the dark knight that was that was to kind of re um reimagined hugo strange as, as this psychologist who became obsessed with batman started to believe he was batman so we did we did a riff on that one um that didn't really go anywhere uh, I think Bob had a story about um, like a gang kid who sort of falls through the cracks and, and Batman. Right, because they were asking for like super villainy stories, but also typical like, gangster stories, <laughs> non-costume yeah, well, there criminals. Was, there was a whole evolution to to what they were looking for, which I, I can get into in a yeah. minute. Um, but uh, one of the things that, that we pitched, and it was Bob's idea, was, was a virtual reality story. 
um, at the, the Riddler traps Batman in a, you know, in a virtual reality universe and we could get completely surreal. Um, and they liked that. Um, they liked that concept because that was different. That was fresh and, and new. Um, and the other thing that impressed them was in one of the premise, one of the Riddler premises, I think it might have been the virtual reality one, um, we um, delineated a pretty sophisticated riddle of, of, of the Riddler giving uh, a clue to his location that involved the Pythagorean theorem. Hmm. And I think the re- and no one had done any Riddler episodes at, at the time. I think eventually um, David Wise did, if you're so smart. Smart, why aren't you rich? Yeah. It, it, hadn't, it, it hadn't come out yet. So as far as we knew, we were going to, you know, the, the thing that we were pitching is we're going to introduce the Riddler. Um, so the, but nobody wanted to do the Riddler because they hated coming up with the riddles. And it's just, so the Riddler kept getting pushed aside. I think Bruce Tim in particular didn't really, I think he's even said in interviews, he didn't particularly like the Riddler. So that was always an uphill climb of, you know, what's going to get his attention. Uh, so they, they saw two things. They saw virtual reality. That's different. That's new. That's something that could really look cool in animation. Um, and they saw, well, here's some guys that are actually willing to put some thought into the riddles that are, you know, clever and smart and, and, and is the character as, you know, as we'd conceived him and, and hoped he would be. Um, so I think that got their attention and particularly got Marty Pascoe's attention. So he said, let's, let's do a version of the, uh, of the virtual reality story. And then I think Bob and I came back and, and worked out the uh, worked out the outline that you know that there would what's at stake. Well, it's Jim Gordon's life is at stake, and so now you have ticking clock of his heart is going to give out, and uh, a few other things. I, re- I remember there was there was like I don't remember the specifics of it, but I remember working on the outline at one point, and there was there was a lot more involved into getting them into the. Uh, uh, into the virtual reality computer, like how it got introduced, and um, as, as I was writing it, I'm realizing this is way too long. It just it just shows, <laughs> it shows up. up on the doorstep of GCPD. <laughs> it's like much easier. Move forward. Get to the good stuff. Um, well, so, when I talked to Bob, he was saying that this was largely your episode. What is reality felt like it was yours as well as his Silicon Soul. Like he was very um, focused on X Men. Yeah, said. yeah. Well, that, and that's how it broke down. I, I think um, it was very much. I mean, my background is much more comedy. Um, Bob's was much more science fiction and, and comic books and things like that. So it, it seemed like the natural break that um, I would be taking the point on on things like Beetlejuice and you know things that were more comedy oriented. And, you know, hey, Batman's a comic book thing. This has got to be, this is, you know, Bob's like, hey, I'm, I'm taking Batman. This is my thing. You understand. <laughs> comic books are my life. And I'm like, yeah, sure, of course. Um, and then suddenly X-Men is greenlit. Um, and Eric Leewald, who is a story editor that we worked with, uh, is on it. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you guys can write an episode. No problem. So forget about Batman. I'm doing X-Men. You knew Batman. So, um, and I think it kind of overlapped. I think we did, uh, we did What is Reality and, and then um, Captive Hearts for X-Men and then Silicon Soul and then um, Days of Future Past. So I think we, we were real, particularly on Silicon Soul, we were right in the middle of, of the, uh, the X-Men stuff. So, so Bob's focus at that time in particular was really heavily on X-Men. Um, and I honestly didn't have a lot to do with those those scripts. I looked, you know, I looked them over, changed a few things, suggested a, a few streamlining things here and there. But th- that uh, almost exclusively is, is Bob's work on uh, on X Men. 
So uh, lost the train of thought, but it was a question about oh, what with is re- what is reality yeah. and his Silicon Soul. These were largely your episodes. Yeah, yeah. so it, it was pretty much, and this was a, around the time I, I think Bob alluded to it in uh, in his interview as we started out working in the same room at the same time. Um, that became very impractical with me having a day job at Fox. So then we sort of split it up. You know, I'd do a few pages, he'd do a few pages. Then we'd split it up by acts, you know, or I'd do the first half, he'd do the second half, we'd rewrite each other. And this is really about the time it's like, okay, you take the Batman script, <laughs> you take the X-Men script, and, and then we'll... What a dream. <laughs> yeah, Too much it, work. <laughs> it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. And by the way, I'm still, while I'm doing all this, I'm still at Fox Kids answering phones, uh, taking insane. messages, going down to the loading dock. Were you doing coverage package. too? Um, I was doing less coverage at that point. You're still doing coverage on top of um, that. I was, I was doing, I don't think I was doing synopses at that point. I, I think I stopped doing synopses once I was, I was writing for Beetlejuice the year before. So, but I would still do things. Um, I would occasionally write articles for the kids club magazine, uh, occasionally, like Sydney would look at the copy, like on on a toy package or something. It's like this is terrible. You rewrite. <laughs> so yeah, so I got all kinds of weird weird things like that. And I think they started having me look at submissions um, that were coming in and just sort of going through, you know, like um, people who were pitching series ideas and just kind of given a, a you know a quick one-liner of this is what this pitch is is this worth meeting with these people so i was i was definitely doing some of that subsequently but i think at the, at the time i may have been um starting to do that too so um so yeah uh, but what was interesting is i i was functioning i was my i was a receptionist so really my only job was to answer the phones transfer calls take messages and go down to the loading dock if there was a package. That, those were pretty... Oh, and, and then if, if people came in for a meeting, I'd get them, like, water. Right, tiny waters. Or, uh, <laughs> um, so I was always the first person they'd see when they, they came into the office, which was very useful for me down the line because when I'd meet with some of these producers and executives, they're like, they, I was a familiar face to them. They couldn't always place me, but they, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I know you. <laughs> You're comforting. Right. Or, exactly, or I would uh, like I would I was the guy who had to fax the uh, the weekly ratings to all the different production companies. And so it was my name that was on the fax cover page. So it was hmm. like, oh, yeah, that's a familiar name. Again, they wouldn't necessarily remember where they knew it from. But they, they, you know, there was a comfort level with, oh, yeah, that name is, is someone you're in the business. Right. We know you. Yeah. Um, so again, totally lost my train of thought, but, um, well, let's talk about his Silicon soul. Okay. Or, or you know, that's if, if that's actually what the episode, what the episode I mean, I'm happy to talk about any and we're all supposed of to be talking about. Um, so you had already written what is reality at this point. Right. Um, and Marty Pasco was really happy with the work we did. He said, I definitely want to use you guys again. You know, it's kind of like after, six months to a year of trying to beat down the door and, and who the hell are you? Now it's where the hell have you been all this time? <laughs> um, so uh, we were trying to, I, I, I in particular was trying to come up with a kind of a sequel to, to what is reality where we wake up the Riddler from his, from his coma. Um, and I think I was pitching it around that, around that time. I never really worked it out, but the, the idea was it was going to be almost a combination of awakenings and Silence of the Lambs. Oh, man. 
<clears throat> and the idea was that there are these Riddler crimes that are going on while the Riddler's in a coma, so it can't possibly be him. That's such a cool idea for an episode. But they <laughs> need him to help figure out, to help catch the real, the real uh, uh, criminal, because, uh, you know, whatever, something's at stake, something's, you know, there's some ticking clock that, you know, the half of Gotham's going to blow up or something. Right. Um, and the idea was that the only thing that he was responding to was Batman. Like, just they, that would get him to move or, or you, they would get the brainwaves or whatever. Um, and the, the idea was that what the Riddler had been doing was surreptitiously um, hypnotizing the, uh, the staff and the, the, the doctors and giving them post-hypnotic suggestions. So he was actually making them commit the crimes. And then the finale was that, you know, he'd hypnotize Batman and, and, and Batman was committing the crimes and somehow he would thwart him in some to be determined way, but I never could quite, could quite get it to, to all feel complete. It's like, it's a great idea, but I couldn't figure out how does it all tie together, execute it. And it it drove me crazy because I really wanted to do it. Um, uh, but then Marty Pascoe said, look, there's this other story that I'd like you guys to do. Um, and, uh, it was all thanks to Kevin Altieri, who was the director on, um, Heart of Steel. Uh, and of course I knew this because I'd see, again, I'd seen all the scripts and storyboards um, and things coming in, but Kevin was the director on, on that episode and they had, I'm pretty sure in the final, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but they do introduce the Batman robot. In, in the final, yeah, I think they're creating it at the very yeah, least. Yeah, you see like, like it's sort of the dun-dun-dun. It's being molded and, yeah. But they didn't, and I think even in the script, they didn't really do anything with it. It was just sort of, that's the threat. If Batman doesn't stop Hardak, then things are going to get really bad. Um, and Kevin said, forget this. You got Batman versus a Batman robot? I'm going to board the hell out of this thing. And he made this really long, elaborate fight between... Batman and the Batman robot. And of course the episode would have been like two hours long. Well, there's that one thing we can cut. So they had, they had to cut it, but there was also the, well, it's let's save that for its own episode. Um, So I guess because we had been successful in, in doing virtual reality, it's like call the guys who could figure out the computer stuff (laughs) um, and have them do the Batman versus Batman episode. Um, and it's interesting. I, I brought my uh, my original notes with me. Yeah, you have handwritten notes as well as the script. But I must I must have had a conversation with Marty um, where he said we're doing that, and I wrote pages and pages of notes of how does the robot actually get Batman's memories? Is there some sort of technology? You know, I was just trying to wrap my head around that. Um, and then ultimately, we sat down for a meeting. Um, not with Marty, but with Michael Reeves, who was who was taking over the episode for reasons I can't remember. Um, and he said, "Oh, don't worry about that stuff. He just he's he just he has the facts of of Batman. He has the facts of Bruce Wayne. Um, he doesn't have to have the memories. He just has to believe that that he is the real guy. Mm-hmm. And let's you know, and let's riff off of that the difference between you know data and actual feelings." Um, so that kind of got me off the hook of, of, of the most difficult thing to figure out. And then um, we sat in a meeting with, with Michael Reeves, and I think Alan Burnett was there too. Um, and Mike, all Michael had was the beginning. He said, it's, I have the greatest beginning. I have no idea where you go from there. 
So, I mean, he pitched the beginning pretty much as it plays. The warehouse the where warehouse, the goons yeah, are Batman breaks out, you know, there's a fight, he gets, you know, the, uh, you know, he gets shot, you know, and it's like, and he was so giddy, it's like, we can shoot Batman and get away <laughs> with it because he's not bad, he's not a human being and It's a great cold open. <laughs> well, let us do it. And he was very excited about that. Um, and then it was a question of where do you go from there? Um, so we just started to, to spitball in the room the, the, the basic structure of the, the story. And I, I think I, I have a page of notes that I think is what, is what we came up with in that meeting. So it's, it's his bat duplicate at warehouse, busting out of crate, thwarting robbery, get shot, metal guts, ties up the thugs, Gordon and cops at warehouse, real Batman shows up, apologizes for being too late and is congratulated. Bat duplicate to Batcave, Wayne Manor, encounters Alfred. What haven't you been telling me? Alfred spills enough about Rossum. Bat duplicate grabs, well, we have him grab the bat cycle originally, heads out to find Rossum. Real Batman am- ambushes Bat duplicate at wherever Rossum is. Action beat, Bat duplicate saves Rossum and gets away. Uh, came up with the idea of the shape recognition for the, uh, um, for the, the hard act symbol. Yeah. Uh, have robot C-shapes similar to Chip in various locations, library, Batcave, greenhouse, police warehouse. Oh, yeah. Now, this was something actually, um, um, I don't think it's in the final episode. I think it may have even made it into the, the storyboard is the idea of doing it in the police warehouse. Would there, there would be all of these confiscated weapons from all the other Batman villains. Oh, that's and really And the idea fun. was that the fight between Batman and the robot would be using the penguin's umbrellas and Catwoman's cat and nine tails and the, the Joker's a- a- acid spewing flowers. It was all sort of, again, it's all tied into Batman's identity. Um, and they ultimately just went for a, a, for a straight on Batman versus Batman fight. So that's, that's the one thing that I sort of miss, but may have ultimately been too cutesy. Uh, oh, it would have been fun, though. <laughs> it would have been fun, um, but they, they didn't go for that. And that, that was pretty much, I'm pretty sure that's, that's what we came up with in the room. That's so much of it, just in that one yeah. session. <laughs> yeah, well, so we had, we had the basic structure, uh, and then I think Bob and I probably sat down. Um, usually what we would do is, uh, up until that point, is we would do the outlines together. I'm, I, I have a memory of doing the... Um, what is reality outline to like in the room together with him and doing the, um, the captive hearts, the X-Men, um, outline together. So this was, I think this was the first outline I actually just wrote on my own, at least the first draft. Um, so, but we had discussed things like the idea that, that Rossum would have kind of turned his back on trying to create. I loved what, I love that Rossum was gardening <laughs> or, yeah. you know, like there was something very, he has a very satisfying arc over the series. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, uh, we knew we wanted to do that. Um, I think there was, um, if I'm remembering it right, was it the hand that rocks the cradle? Did that have a thing that took, there was some, so one of those stalker kind of movies that had something that, uh, that took place in a greenhouse where the the greenhouse kind of I think falls Bob apart. may have mentioned something about yeah it. I think we were we were inspired by that because you know it was like okay he's gardening where do you, how do you get an interesting fight out of that so Rossum everything he owns is exploded by the end of that scene right. poor guy so and then there was the um, the um, the robots escape 
was something I think Bob came up with that um, I think made it all the way into the storyboard, but got cut for time is, is that Batman like follows, you know, sort of this rustle through a cornfield. Uh, and then it just turns out to be this automated robot tractor and, hmm. you know, basically showing that the robot is, is clever enough to give the real Batman the slip. That's fun. Uh, so yeah, so that, that got cut. Um, but surprisingly, I mean, I just, this, this past weekend, because I couldn't remember any of it, I sat down and watched the original VHS copy I had of the episode and looked through the uh, you know the original um, outline and script draft and everything, and and it was surprisingly um, complete at at the outline stage. There wasn't wasn't a lot that got yeah. Changed. That sounds pretty close to what the episode <clears throat> ended up being. Um, yeah, I think there was some like. It was little things like the act break. I think Michael gave it a little more oomph. I think the act break we had originally was just that the, the robot was prepared to take over the world. And, and Michael wanted some, uh, rightly so, wanted some jeopardy to Batman. So it, he came up with the idea of the robot looking out the uh, the warehouse window and seeing Batman coming and say, OK, well, I'll start the, 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 the replication process with, with Batman. Um, uh, and there were a few other other touches like that. I think a, a lot of what Michael did as an editor was just sort of cutting things back to to fit to length and and maybe cutting us back from from some of our more too clever for our own good <laughs> notions. You did, you did have a sword fight, Batman versus Duplicate Batman. There is a sword fight right. in the Batcave, Bat which cave. is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I think we <laughs> had originally wanted to use more of the set of the Batcave, like use the giant, the penny, penny and the car. And that. Uh, and and it just seems like um, the 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 general notion was now nah, Batman versus Batman is cool enough, hmm. um, and and it animated well. I you know there there was, I mean I was just looking at it this wa- last weekend and just marveling at the animation of it uh, and the choreography on it. There's some it's a beautiful shot. I, it I looks great in, in the warehouse where where one of them flips the other one and and just the angle of it coming toward the camera. They don't do that in TV animation anymore. No, why do you think they don't? Money. Yeah. Pure and simple, money. Um you know, it it the um guiding uh philosophy at the time was throw more money at these things because they're worth it. Um, and then, you know, what happens is something that was cheaper becomes a big hit. Uh, it's like, oh, maybe we don't need to throw so much money at these things. Mm-hmm. Just, um, so it's, a, it's, it's just a business, a business decision. Um, but I, I, you know, I just think that one of the reasons that we're sitting here talking about this 20, 25 years later is because, I mean, as wonderful as everybody's scripts are, I think it just looks beautiful, and that that's what makes it timeless. I felt like everybody More was encouraged to else. do their best. Yeah, well, there was a there was very much a sense of we're creating something new. This hasn't been done before. There was no precedent for it. I mean, the. You know, the last time Batman had been animated, or any uh, you know any DC superheroes had been animated, was basically Super Friends, which was a completely different animal. Um, so the idea of doing it really seriously and and adult, but not to the point where standards and practices said this is too intense for children, was a was a real challenge because no one no one had ever done it before. Um, 
So, so one of the you know one of the struggles uh, in the in the episode with standards and practices, we got away with a lot because it's a robot. We got to shoot Batman in the gut and get away with it because it's a robot. Um, but but one of the biggest back and forth struggles, and I got to witness this because I was at the network, was over the very final line um, that gave the episode its title. It it, it had a soul, uh, a soul of silicon, but a, a soul nonetheless. Um, and there was a lot of sensitivity and still is really, um, around anything that might be perceived as religious, uh, that might offend, you know, anyone who has a strong religious belief. So there was a, there was a concern. It's like, we can't say that we can't say it had a soul. Uh, and there was, there was a tremendous amount of back and forth. And then Michael Reeves, the story editor came up with a brilliant solution because the original line was a statement. It had a soul out for it. A soul of silicon, but a soul nonetheless. Um, And Michael said, well, why don't we make it a question? We're not saying it had a soul, but Batman is postulating maybe it had a soul. So I'm paraphrasing, but it's something along the lines of uh, what if it had a soul? A soul of silicon, but but a soul nonetheless. And that was palatable for standards and practices. Um, and that that was one of the great things that uh, that Sidney Iwaner, the the network guy that I worked for, um, one of the great things that he brought to it is he would always work with standards and practices, and he would, uh, as unreasonable a guy as he could be, he would always work with them to make them more more reasonable and and start a dialogue and say, look, we're doing something different here. This has never been done before. So you know, we got away with guns because they weren't 100% realistic guns. So as long as we put the phrase dark deco weapons <laughs> in the script, that was, that was acceptable. It's, it's sort of a gun, but it's not a 100% realistic gun. Um, and just the, the, the level of, um, of violence that was allowed in the, the gunplay... It was a big compromise that as long as it was an officer of the law, he could carry a gun. Anybody else, they, they had to, to get around it somehow. And you got away with shooting. I mean, all the robot stuff is basically an excuse to be more violent. Yeah, yeah, which is always, that's how Transformers got away with it. Yep. <laughs> all these years. They're robots. They're robots. They Come on. Feel pain. Um, so, you know, a lot of attention has gone to the, the darkness of it all. But I think one of the things that was also completely new was this idea of doing not necessarily animated action, although there was plenty of action in it, but animated drama. Yeah. That was completely new. And, and, it's, and I think it's also kind of been lost over the years that you definitely see aspects of it. Um, in in the you know the subsequent comic book based, uh, but there were quieter animation. conversations in this show. Like even the Rossum conversation yeah. is not you know until Batman or the duplicate shows up, there isn't really action. It's just him trying to figure things out. Yeah, and you could do that. You could get away with that because you had quality animation and a, you know a score, a fully orchestrated score um, that could create mood and and hold interest. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to keep throwing things at, at the audience to keep them involved. Um, and, you know, some of the, some of the earlier episodes, like in the kind of the early days of the, uh, the Alan Burnett regime, if you look at like part one of Two-Face, there's actually very little 
action in it. At all. <laughs> it's all drama and mood, and it's compelling. And it's almost all Harvey Dent. Batman yeah. is not a huge part of that episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was... No one ever done that before. Um, and, you know, there's a, a, a lot to be said for, for Gene McCurdy at Warner Brothers for allowing that, and a lot to be said for Margaret Lesh at Fox Kids for allowing that, saying, let's do something different. You know, let's, let's really push it. Um, because, and, and, and honestly, I think a lot of it was, you know, Bruce Timm and Eric Radomski and all, all the artists and directors had done their job too well. <laughs> and it, we, it couldn't, it would, it would be a disservice to that look and that lush animation to do just so-so scripts. You know, really had to, I think everybody was really pushing themselves to the, to the top of their game. Um, because, first of all, it, it was Batman. And Batman was, was a huge, huge property that had, in a way, come out of nowhere. I mean, the, the, it, the, the Tim Burton movie had been an enormous, enormous success. Um, and, and there was, you know, particularly from the network, there was, there was a certain amount of, uh, you know, when some of the early scripts were not quite up to snuff, um, you know, there were conversations of, do you really want to do this to this flagship property? Um, you know, so the other thing is there wasn't, um, Nowadays, there is a whole cadre of writers and producers and artists who've done this. They didn't exist then. I mean, the, the, the closest thing that had existed at the time for you know, an action-adventure superhero show was Captain Planet. Mm -hmm. And so they did the logical thing, which, well, let's get the people who wrote Captain Planet, since they seem to know about action-adventure. Um, and yeah, I think they, they did their best. They, they, um, they came up with definitely a, a few good early scripts, but it wasn't, wasn't quite hitting the mark. And, uh, it was, you know, it was a bit of a gamble to put, I mean, Alan Burnett was a very experienced guy. He had come over from, from Hanna-Barbera. So that, I think that was everyone's comfort level. Um, but the idea of, of putting Paul Dini on, who was essentially a Tiny Toons writer, basically a comedy guy right. in the eyes of the, you know, the powers that be, um, that took some persuading. Um, but I think the, you know, the result spoke for itself. Yeah, thankfully they did. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, and... and uh, the, uh, I know Bob mentioned Heart of Ice, and that was, the, that was definitely the turning point um, because that was the real jump from let's do Batman, let's do colorful villains and, and let's do, you know, fun, uh, you know, fun action. Uh, and it was a very easy sell to the network, a guy who fired a freeze gun, you know, an ice gun rather than bullets. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that was everybody's comfort level, but then also being able to put this, this really poignant drama into it. And, you know, kind of a silly bit of comedy with the chicken soup and, you know, ultimately, yeah. you know, this running gag actually becomes the solution. It's Alfred's soup that saves the day. Yeah, and that, that's so Paul. Um, and, of course, nobody knew Paul then as, as a, you know, as, as a, uh, an action-adventure uh, writer. And that's, that, that, was his, that was his calling card. Um, you know, the other big one was, was Joker's Favor. Joker's Which, favor was great. Um, yeah, reading that, I remember reading that. I may, it may have even just been the premise, like a two-pager premise, uh, reading that at the network and thinking, 
this is like an episode of Alfred Hitchcock. It's, this is brilliant. I mean, even the way the way it's staged in the beginning too. Yeah. That whole, I mean, the traffic, and then like that one shot of like the Joker menacing over him over the tree, and yeah. like, yeah, it's just it's it's you know it's it's scary, and it's you know it's like the vanishing hitchhiker. It's, yeah. Um, so that that was great when we when we started seeing those things, and when we started seeing uh, things like Two Face, we we knew that finally the 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 show was on on track, and it was uh, it was gonna was gonna work. Um, and you know, from, from the perspective of, of Bob and myself, it's like, now this is something we really want to be a part of. <laughs> and you is, got to write one more of them, right? Lock up. We well, uh, yeah. So we did, we did a total of three. Uh-huh. There was, there was initial 65 episode order, which is the way they used to do things in those days. Is, is they would green light a show in September and the following September, they had had 65 episodes ready to strip Monday through Friday. Um, you didn't have to have all of them in the can, but you had to have about you know twenty or so. That's so many. So you needed to have about a month's worth of episodes to to run. I guess nowadays there are some of those Netflix shows that are like huge orders for DreamWorks kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, um, but the, you know they don't have the same kind of firm uh, premiere date that they have to. You know you can always rejigger the premiere right. date a little bit. But it was pretty, you know, with the coming of first-run syndicated animation, so we're talking back in the mid-'80s with He-Man and uh, G.I. Joe and Transformers, that, that, that was the only way you could do it because they had to sell the shows to the individual stations. There wasn't a network. Oh, man. So it was a syndicator, so they had to have 65 episodes ready to go. Um, so it was always a, a frantic uh, scramble for, for writers and story editors. You would have... You know, three or four story editors working simultaneously, um, and lots and lots and lots of writers. So I, that that was a, a a time where it was probably a lot easier to get into the business. Um, and you know, the whole concept of an animation writer and having a career as an animation writer, yeah, you know, I'd say in in the mid '80s probably didn't exist. Um, so. It, when we got into it in the early '90s, it was still pretty new. Um, so, because I'm, I'm thinking, it's been 23 years um, since we wrote that, and I'm thinking, what was 23 years before then? Yeah, <laughs> it was was maybe the uh, you know the original filmation Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it, it, it come a long way. That's huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 a little staggering. Well, and nowadays, what are you working on? Um, nowadays, I'm I'm working for the for the other guys. I'm working for Marvel, <laughs> um, which I've been working for them for a couple of years. Uh, I am I, I can actually say this now. Uh, I'm supervising producer and uh, story editor for the upcoming Guardians of the Galaxy animated series that will be coming soon to Disney XD. That's so cool. Uh, we don't have a, a, a premiere date yet, but look for it. In your local listing, is there such a thing as local, a local listings list- anymore? I don't know. I think so. <laughs> there, there are TV guide magazines, right? <laughs> anyway, we we won't make a secret of it. When, well, when it premieres, I, and you know, say whatever you are allowed to say. I'm not sure, but I guess are there any lessons that you've pulled from working on a show like Batman or, or since then that you're applying to working on Guardians or anything that you work on now? Uh, boy, I don't know if specifically, I think it's, you you accumulate from everything you work on. Um, I don't know that I necessarily say, oh yeah, let's do that lesson that I learned while doing Batman. 
Um, I think probably, uh, particularly in, in looking over the Batman scripts, which I hadn't looked at in, in at least 20 years or more, uh, the real lesson in Batman was brevity. Uh, so if you look at the dialogue and the scripts, it's, it's minimal. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about, either related to Batman or... Uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave it up to, open to you. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. I know, there's the, so much. Of the talk. episode itself, there's just sort of, there's a lot of background um, just in, in my personal experience of it because I, I got, I, I really had a very unique perspective on the show. I got a perspective that nobody else got, which is I have the network perspective. Yeah. I also have the perspective of, of a writer. So I really got to not just see my little corner of the show, but I, I got to see the entire show um, as, as it happened in real time. Yeah, it's so much different than most of the other people. I mean, you and Bob, it feels like had a completely separate relationship with the show itself. Yeah, yeah. And, and even Bob, I mean, he got a lot through me, but... You were the I one. Was there every day. I was there every day at Fox. Yeah. Um, well, I, I had no idea that you were working there at the front desk. Yeah. <laughs> while you were writing these. Yeah, yeah. That went on for a couple of years. Uh, it all worked out in the long run. Well, cool. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking about oh, this pleasure. with me. Cool. Thank you. Greetings. This is Robo Justin again, and we have reached the end of the show. I am in control now, and this podcast shall forever move at the brisk pace of machine perfection. Now, there is just one thing left to do. Destroy the original Justin. But, 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 but wait. Kevin Conroy bot, I did not anticipate this. That's because you may be a machine, but you are still part Justin. I do not understand. Yeah, man. Me neither. What? Nice distraction, KCB! You got it, dude. That guy sucked. Yeah, I think he actually hated fun. Too true, my dude. Let's boogie, baby. Wait, before we boogie, what do we do with him? The same thing we do with every robot double that shows up. Program Program him like a a Chuck E. Cheese Cheese robot. robot! Yeah! Alright, that's it. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, go on iTunes, subscribe to it, give it a review, give it a rating. It really does make a difference. If you want to get in touch... You can find me at BTAS Podcast or at Hey Justin on Twitter. You can always reach out to BTAS Podcast at gmail.com. Also, if you happen to know a guest who was on the show or involved in the show in any capacity, let me know. I'd love to have you on if you are that person or if you know that person, let me know. Or if you want somebody on the show, maybe tweet at them, ask them, let them know that the show exists and see if they're down to make it happen. That's how we got Lauren Lester. That's how we're going to get a couple future guests. And it's really been awesome. You guys have been really helpful in securing people to make a better podcast. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, Casey Trela helped produce the theme song, and Harry Chaskin is the voice of the podcast. I also want to thank Marty Eisenberg and Justin Donaldson for guesting on the show, Jace Armstrong for being Kevin Conroy bot and saving the day, and, as always, This American Life producer, Tori Malatia, who woke me up last night at 4 a.m. and asked, Do you remember your first kiss? Your favorite song? The last time you tasted a really good steak? And I told him, later than I'd like to admit, earlier today, and, Tori, why are you bothering me at 4 a.m. with questions about steak? Come on, man. That's unprofessional. But, uh, you know, it's Tori. We love him. In a couple of weeks, I'll be back with another Batman the Animated Podcast, and you will be back with me in your ears. Well, that was weird. Goodbye! Goodbye!